you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning I'll be reading from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was as clear as crystal. It flowed from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. Its fruit was ripe every month. The leaves of the tree bring healing to the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The the, uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. God's servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light. They will rule forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to, for you to be here today. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here as well. And we've, we're beginning this, this Sunday, the season of Advent. And I want to ask the question, why? Why Advent? Because it's, it's more than Christmas. In fact, in my family, we're very careful to, to use those two words separately. Advent is the, the season that we're in. Christmas is the day that uh, we celebrate. And Advent is more than decorations, although I love the decorations that are here today. And it's more than Christmas songs, although I loved the Christmas songs we sang last Wednesday night at the hymn sing and the songs that pepper our worship over the next four days. I've, I've, I went to a, a party the other day, and we, we played a game. And the game was to name as many Christmas songs as you possibly could and if somebody else sang your song, then you had to cross that uh, name off of your list. But we just kept going round and round and round the room. I think some of the best worship music is Christmas music. And part of the reason why I think that's true is because it takes, it takes you out of the focus. It's not so much about your feelings, although those matter. It's not so much about your commitment, although that matters. It's about Jesus. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, or, or coming. We live in a season where we remind ourselves of the story of Jesus' birth and lean into the story of Jesus' return so that we share the hopeful expectation of, of Simeon and Anna. We share the peace-filled delight of Mary and Elizabeth, confident in a God who keeps promises. So what are you waiting for? Maybe what are you hopefully expecting? What in your world is coming? And when it comes, you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like Christmas. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. If you have your Bible, you can turn it there. But before you do that, uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, for this body of believers that gathers in your name to celebrate your son, Jesus, to experience the communion of our Eucharist, our thanksgiving together. A Father who leans into the hope that one day you will come again, I give you praise. 
And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your love and truth to these, your people. It's together that the church says, amen. This is weird for me to admit. It's almost kind of a little bit like a confession, but one of the things that excites me most about Christmas is opening presents. I still love opening presents. I know, I know, I'm a grown man. And Christmas changes like when you get a generation below you, right? In, in my family, I have, I have nieces and nephews that are hitting their 30s. But in, 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 in my wife's family, the kids didn't come till much, much, much later. And it was always more fun at Christmas to go to my family's house than to go to her family's house before we had kids. I'm sorry, but it's true. But I, I, like, I like my kids watch opening gifts. I love to give gifts and see the joy when I get the right thing for the right person. But I love most of all, I love opening gifts. I love to see what's inside. And I know I'm a grown man. I can buy whatever I want. It's still true. I love to open gifts. And I love that hopeful expectation. You know, we wouldn't even have Christmas if the only gospel we had was the book of Mark. We wouldn't have it because Jesus just appears on the scene, 30 years old, ready to begin ministry. Luke, on the other hand, is a musical. It's where we get all of our songs. Mary is singing, Elizabeth is singing, the angels are singing, everyone is singing. Matthew is the fulfillment of prophecy. Over and over in the book of Matthew, as you read those first few chapters, so that it would fulfill what Isaiah said, so it would fulfill what Zechariah said, so it would fulfill what the prophet said. John wants to go back to like the cosmic beginning of time. And he rolls the clock forward to John the Baptist, calling for repentance. And it can be difficult because there's only about six or seven chapters of material. But every year, for four weeks, year after year, you have to keep coming back to this same material and find some, like, slightly different take on the story of Advent. And, and maybe you want to talk about it from the perspective of the donkey that lives near the manger. Sometimes you want to talk about it like the mouse that lives, I don't know. You're just desperate for material. And so this year... I want us to think together in this time of the service less about the story of the baby, Jesus coming as a baby, as much as the story of the coming of the victory of Christ the King. Not just victory over Pharisees or the teachers of law or victory over Pilate and the powers of the Romans, but of the conquering power of, a cry of Christ over all evil, all sin, and even death. And so we're going to be in the book of Revelation this year for Advent. And Revelation is this visually stunning book. And I have some friends here in, in, our, in our church that like to draw as I preach. It kind of keeps their minds on it, and their parents will say, I don't know how much, you know, like my child was, was listening to the sermon until I looked at what they drew, and then they'll show it to me, and they've mapped out my sermon. Every move they've done, they've got a picture for it. And so I want to encourage you over the next four weeks to draw as I preach. And let your, or at least let your mind kind of create the vision that John foretells. Because it's this visually stunning book. 
It's also a book that's fraught with misinterpretation. I say this in jest, but I would encourage you not to listen to anyone making complicated predictions about the future if they call the book Revelations. That's just a tip-off. If they add an S at the end, take it with a grain of salt. Because there's a difference between apocalypse and eschatology. There's a difference between apocalyptic literature and eschatological literature. And the problem is that John is writing an apocalyptic eschatology, but if you try to draw those lines too sharply, you veer into what I like to call 2 a.m. Christian radio, which is where they put the people that only belong at 2 a.m., right? There's people that want to draw lines in Revelation where I don't think they belong. That hornets are Apache helicopters, or that the beast was George Bush Sr. and the first Iraq war was the Battle of Armageddon, or later that the beast was George W. Bush and the second Iraq war was the Battle of Armageddon, or the beast is Barack Obama because he's a fine orator, or the beast is Trump, and you just see how it goes, right? They always seem to roll the eschatology, or at least the prophecy, forward until it's right now, it's only for us, and this is the sudden end. Now there's a way that they're right, that this book is about us, but there's a way in which the fine detail in which they draw those lines makes me a little uncomfortable. There's a difference between prophecy and apocalypse. An apocalypse wants to draw back the curtain so that you can see the forces of evil that are at work behind the scenes. But not just the forces of evil, the forces of God. Prophecy and apocalypse are cousins, but they aren't the same. And the purpose of Revelation is to use these fantastic images to remind Christians in the crucible of persecution, losing their friends or losing their property, perhaps even losing their lives, that in the end, God wins. God overcomes the powers and the principalities. That in the end, God gets what God wants. And so I want us to begin the story with the end in mind. And I want to tell you the story of two trees. In the beginning of the scripture, in fact, book one, chapter one, the Hebrews call it the, the origins, beginning of the story. God creates the universe in six days. And on the last day, God creates humanity, male and female. And it is the crowning achievement of everything that God has made. And God calls us good. And that's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 paints a slightly different picture. That it, God begins in a garden. A perfect garden, mind you. It's, it's his garden. And I want you to think of the way uh, British folk use that word more than Americans do. And in God's garden, God is making a human out of the dirt and the ground. And God breathes into this human, and it has life, but it has more than life because it has this unique place in all of creation as the image bearer of God. And God lets the human live and work in his garden. And I don't want you to think of a garden like a place to grow carrots and tomatoes. I want you to think of it more like God's backyard, more of the, the British sense of garden. It's, it's the place behind God's palace. 
It's not a cotton patch. It's Versailles. French, uh, the King Louis Thirteenth. And if you've ever been able to visit, it's just outside of Paris, just far enough away that it made it difficult for all of the rabble, to, the courtesans, all of the, all the people to come there. It's just beautifully landscaped. Grass and lawns for miles, it seems, because it shows that the king doesn't need to make plants that are edible. He can just make a place for beauty. And it's in God's backyard, in the cool of the day, after God is done working, that Adam and Eve... And God experience one another. We also know that Adam and Eve encounter a tree. The book of Origins calls it the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they are not to eat from it, or their eyes will be opened. I'm going to pause here to tell you three things. The first is how much God actually respects you. God respects you so much that God gives you the power of autonomy. God respects the mind that you have and the will that you have to the degree that he's allowing you to choose anything other than God. God says, you can live however you want, or you can live the way that I created you. It's almost as if God is saying, Adam and Eve, it's your choice. And it's still our choice. God loves you too much to hold you captive. A student asked this question just this week. It was a, a student in my Bible class, and uh, he's from a different country. He's an international student, and he's kind of encountering Scripture in some ways for the first time. His, his, he has kind of extended family that has faith, and he ended up here for a good education. But he started reading the Bible. I, I teach the Gospels, but he's reading Genesis on his own. And he said, okay, so here's the question. Where did Cain's wife come from? I get where Adam comes from. I understand where Eve comes from. I understand Abel and Cain, where they came from. Where does Cain's wife come from? And so we talked about that for a minute. And some of the possible answers that theologians and scholars have answered it over the centuries. But... Where, where I left him was, the best advice is to just to ask the questions that the Bible is trying to answer. And the creation narrative tells us not only our origin, but it also tells us where we're at right now. As we read the story of Adam and Eve, we find ourselves in their shoes. It's not just a story of Adam and Eve, it's a story of you and me. And the power of this origin story is not so much that it happened, but it's happening. It happens. And we find ourselves listening to the lies of the evil one and betraying the one person who truly, completely loves us. And we find ourselves wandering away from God, still with God's blessing and provision on our backs. But we also carry the consequence of our choices. And this is the first tree. Now I want us to turn our Bible, not from the first chapter of the first book, but to the last chapter of the last book. The end of the Bible is funny because it doesn't talk about the end. It talks about a new beginning. And so I want us today to look at this last chapter and see if there's something for us to hear. Because what John speaks about it toward the end of the book of Revelation is God creating new heavens and a new earth. 
Or better yet, it's an understanding of merging heaven to earth. There's this fantastic image of, of this new Jerusalem, this fantastic city that's more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. It's filled with gold as asphalt and precious gemstones as the foundations of building. And it's coming down from heaven to meet earth. And there are rivers in this new city. And the, there's this reference there to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 talks about a river that flows out from under the temple eastward, and it travels to the Dead Sea. And Ezekiel says, the water was so potent that it healed the Dead Sea of its saltiness, and fish could live there again. That the presence of God was remaking a dead place and giving it new life. And in this, this story in Revelation, this image that we see, there's no temple. It's just the throne of God and the Lamb. And rivers of life flow out from them. And it's in this image that we counter the second tree. It has 12 different kinds of fruit, so there's always something in season, which for us that live with grocery stores that can get a mango in the middle of winter, it doesn't seem that strange. But to the ancient Near East in the first century, the idea of having fresh fruit at any other time than that two-week window when the fruit is still ripe would have been bizarre. Fresh fruit, fresh food all the time. So there's something always in season. But not only that, its leaves bring peace to the nations. It heals bodies. And it mends relationships. And it restores souls. Which means that we will all get along. But the best thing about this city is what comes next. John wants to tell us that there will no longer be a curse. That the, the consequence of the first tree and the first disobedience, the disobedience that we carry in our own lives, the reason why we have strife with one another and strife with God, that the curse will be no more. And everything that is wrong in the world, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, nature that turns deadly, parasites and pathogens, the tendency to hate and steal and experience envy, the disordered passions that push nations at war and brother against brother wiped away. That you will no longer experience questions about the purpose and meaninglessness of your own existence. That the quiet, gnawing questions of whether or not you were loved or whether or not anything you do matters will be answered by the overwhelming love of God. And you will be able to see what you cannot see right now. You will be able to see the ripples of faithfulness of generations made manifest through time like a stone dropped into a deep pool. You will be able to see the goodness of God's work all around you through time. But the best of the best is not that the curse is wiped away. The best of the best is that you will see God face to face. Moses couldn't do it. The most righteous man in the Old Testament could not look on God's face because if he did, he would die. And you might think at first because that's it's just too much power to look at God's face. But I think it was because there was too much holy love. But new heavens and new earth also mean transformed selves. God will be with us. So there will be no need for the original markers of creation. 
the sun and the moon that God creates, as Isaiah and Zechariah promised, God's glory will be enough for us. So if that's the first beginning and the new beginning, what about us? What does it mean to live in between the trees? Well, the reality is there's a third tree, the cross. The reality is that God comes to earth, not just to wipe the slate clean, not just to uh, pay the price of sin, but also to show us how to live. I mean, the, the world is drenched with God. God is not silent. I mean, who invented art and who invented music and who invented laughter? Who invented awe? In Acts, God says that those who seek him find him. In Isaiah, God says, it's not like I've spoken in secret or, or you reach out in vain. God's love is everywhere in this world. In fact, it's not our world that experiences God. It's God's world and it experiences us. And hope is not a ticket. Faith is not a ticket. Faith is not the means by which we can make sure we get from one tree to the other tree. That's not what the purpose of what we do is at all. Although there are some who articulate it that way, it's the most... It's boiling out all of the tea and just trying to drink the stain at the bottom of the cup. Faith is the invitation to the kingdom that is opening all around us. It is the unfolding that we see that began in the life of Jesus, that culminates in the death of Jesus, that is made manifest in the resurrection of Jesus, that is poured on us through the power of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and we live in our lives now. Faith is the invitation to join the work that God is doing. To love people the way God loves people. To have mercy the way that God has mercy. Rob Bell tells this story of an old Jewish saying, and I couldn't find the Jewish saying, so I'm just going to trust that what he said was real. He says there's this old Jewish saying that says that the good deeds you do in life become the seeds of Eden. Which is kind of time wonky if you chew on it for a second. The good deeds you do in life become the seeds of Eden. I want to say it a little bit differently. When we learn that our faith is not a ticket or some sort of fire insurance, but invitation to something more, we are welcomed in to do things we never would, we never would have believed possible. Working with people for peace and justice. We become the people who, who partner with God to confront evil, who refuse to believe that the reality we see around us is the way that it's supposed to be, who are willing to sit in the dark and, and mourn the reality that we experience, but also we hold in our hearts the hope that says that God is doing something better and something more. We are the people who ruthlessly work to eliminate the parts of us inside of us they're in rebellion to God. I, um, I blow up songs sometimes. 
And I, I think it was my first week here that I pointed out that sometimes songs say the wrong things. And the song in question was Reckless Love. And I made the simple point, it was very clear, obvious to me, that God is not reckless in any shape, manner, form, or imagine. Therefore, God's love can't be reckless. God does exactly what God intends, no more than no less. I think what the author of the song meant is that God is relentless. And Michael, one of our worship ministers, and I still argue about that one. Sometimes I throw it into a worship meeting just for fun for the 15 minutes of debate. I want to do it again. Um, and this one's not mine. This one belongs to someone else. Uh, the song that I, I love, and I have loved for the last season that we've sang it, Here I Am, Lord, Send Me. Beautiful lyrics. Beautiful lyrics of commitment. And it, and it, and it has this line, though, that once I heard it in this light, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hear it any other way. It says, if the truth cuts like an arrow... I will say it anyway. And I wonder if that's the kind of new kingdom that God's calling. I wish that I could have written that song, which I can't. Not capable of doing. But if I were to play with that line, I would say, if the truth cuts like an arrow, I will hear it anyway. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Who invented art, music, laughter? Who created awe? Our existence is more meaningful and more powerful than you could possibly imagine. And I believe that one aspect of heaven is going to for you to be able to see the ripples that were caused when you were faithful, when you received in humility, when you chose to respond with kindness instead of hate. I believe that there is going to be one moment in the presence of God where you're going to see history laid out before you. History between two trees. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Will you please stand for our benediction? This week, may you live your life full, overwhelmingly full, overflowingly full of hope. But more than hope, may you live with courage. May you be part of the kingdom that is unfolding all around us as we celebrate the victory of Christ's coming and Christ's return. May you be filled with peace.